Good morning. My name is Steve Van Horn. I'm the associate lead pastor uh, here at Fellowship North. And uh, we are continuing our study through the book of John this morning. Michael got us kicked off a couple weeks ago. And I am going to continue through the first chapter of John. Uh, We're calling this a study on the book of John, Everyday People, Everyday Life. And last week, we heard the testimony of the Apostle John. Uh, and who he saw God to be, who the person of God was. And he took us on a journey of seeing God as the Word, the Word of God who was with God and was God. And then he called this Word the light, which was the life of men. And then he called him the one and only, the one and only Son of God, Jesus Christ. He, he pulls back the curtain finally and he says, This is who the Word of God is. This is who the light and the life of men is. This is who the one and only Son of God is. It is Jesus Christ. That is the testimony of John. And in when when we see who the Word of God is, and I might be taking some liberties here, and I'll admit that, but I want you to see not only did John show us who the Word was, but also when we see who the Word is, how we can respond to the Word. How we can respond to the Word. If you look, the first five verses of John, and we talked about this last week, so this is kind of review, the first five verses is, is John saying, hey, in order to live life to the fullest, to find abundant life, You must know who God is. And he answers that in verses 1 through 5. And he says, you need to be grounded in this truth. That in the beginning was the Word. All things were created by Him and through Him. And this is who the Word is. It is Jesus Christ. And the first five verses answer how we are to live like Jesus in that we are to be grounded in the truth of God's Word. Grounded in the truth of Jesus Christ. The second thing that we see is in verses 6 through 13, how we are to respond uh, and be faithful in obedience. Now, you see a bunch of different examples of this. You see in verses 6 through 8, John the Apostle points to the ministry and the life of, of John the Baptist and his testimony. He gives you a quick little preview of what John the Baptist's testimony, testimony is, and we're going to look at that more today. Uh, but you see his response of obedience you see the response of Christ coming to the world and, uh, and um, being obedient to the Father by submitting himself to the Father. You see the alternate response, which is the world whom he, who God created, seeing the one who, uh, who created them, but ultimately rejecting them. So you see different responses in verses 6 through 13 And what we see is that as believers, we are to respond faithfully in obedience. The third thing, the third pillar of the Christ life, you might call it, is to be generous in love. And if you look just at verse 14 of chapter 1, you'll see that John says that Jesus came and dwelt among his people. And we talked about last week how him dwelling among his people is the most supreme act of love that the world has ever seen. 
because God left the fullness, the glory of, of the Most High and came to the earth among people who are not uh, glorious, who are not uh, full of His holiness. But He came full of grace and truth so that they might have life. And finally, in verse 15 through 18, you see John talking uh, about the story of who Jesus is. Finally pulls back the curtain in verses 15 through 17 and says, This is the Word of God. This is the light. This is the one and only Son of God. It is Jesus Christ. And here's his story that I want to share with you and that we are going to springboard off of the rest of this gospel. And then in verse 18... He says, no one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, He has made Him known. So we see how uh, to live like Jesus is to be fruitful in disciple-making. To be fruitful in disciple-making. To, to share the message of the good news. So the four pillars, again, to be grounded in truth, faithful in obedience, generous in love, fruitful in disciple-making. But what we'll see, and, and John 1, 1 through 18 alludes to this, that there are competing missions that will be going on throughout this gospel. There will be competing missions. The Apostle John has a mission to communicate the good news of Jesus Christ to the world. We're going to see a character who has a mission that's very similar to John the Apostle's. But you're also going to see uh, a group of people who have an alternate mission, a contrasting mission. And I think that what we'll see is that we all can share in both missions. That we all started on a track in one mission, but then we needed Christ, because that's the purpose of why he came, to, to intervene and give us a new course, a new mission. So we'll see how the missions when Jesus comes into the world, collide. So let's uh, look first. Uh, we're going to look through verses 19 through 34. It's another big section. And we're going to come up uh, to a character. We're not going to jump into the passage just yet because I want to give you a little bit of background. Uh, we're going to see a guy named John the Baptist. This guy is different than the apostle who is writing the book. Um, he is a guy that, he, that John alludes to in verses 6 through 8. Um, but some things that you need to know about John the Baptist. Who is he? Uh, who is this character? Because he plays a pretty big role in the beginning of this gospel of setting the stage for who Jesus is. And what we'll see is uh, if we look back in Luke chapter 1 and look at verse 36, you will see an angel talking to Mary, Jesus' mother, and telling Mary about John the Baptist. And this is what the, uh, the angel says. And behold, your relative, Elizabeth, in her old age has conceived a son. And this is the sixth month with her who, who was called barren. So Elizabeth, Mary's cousin, uh, is pregnant with John the Baptist. And the reason why this is significant is because uh, if you look a little bit um, uh, earlier in the passage, it's, it tells how this came to be in Luke 1. You see, John the Baptist was not just from some, you know, 
uh, run-of-the-mill family, he was the son of one of the priests of Israel. He was one of the priests' sons, Zechariah. And Zechariah was going into the temple to perform his priestly duties, and an angel appears to Zechariah and says, you are going to have a son. And Zechariah goes, have you seen my wife? How is that possible? I mean, she's pretty old. Are you aware of our situation? Uh, Which could get Zechariah into trouble, and maybe that's why uh, the angel did what he was about to do. Uh, so that he couldn't go back to, um, to Elizabeth and say, hey, I had this vision, and uh, the vision said that we were going to have a kid, but I told them that you were too old. Maybe, maybe that's why the angel did what he was going to do to Zechariah, which was when he doubted, he made Zechariah mute. He could not speak. And when he came out of the temple, he, he literally could not speak, and everyone knew at that point that Zechariah had seen a vision from the Lord. So when John is born, all of uh, Elizabeth's friends come and they say, what are you going to name this child? You're going to name it Zechariah, right? Because that's our tradition. That's, that's the rule, right? You're going to name this uh, child after the father. And what the people didn't know was even John's uh, name, it was just the beginning of how John was going to blow up the religious and the traditions of the day. Elizabeth says, no, we're going to name him John. And, and everyone says, are you sure? And, and then Zechariah writes on a tablet and says his name is John. And at that moment, his lips are loosed, his tongue is loosed, and he's able to speak. And the first words out of Zechariah's mouth are a prayer of blessing over his son. And what I want you to look at is in verse 76. This is kind of midway to the end of uh, Zechariah's prayer. And he says, And you, child, he's talking about his son, will be called the prophet of the Most High. For you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high. Now get this, pay attention to the language that Zechariah uses, because it's significant. Because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. And the child grew and became strong in spirit. And he was in the wilderness until the day of his public appearance to Israel. John's purpose was to prepare the way for the Lord. His mission was clear as it was given by his father. Um, And this is where we pick up in our passage. John's uh, whole life leading up to the gospel of John in chapter 1 brings us to this point. He he had this blessing prayed over him. He was living uh, and growing in spirit. Uh, the Spirit of the Lord, and he goes out into the wilderness until his public appearance. Well, guess what? John 1 picks up where he is uh, appeared or where he's uh, presented to Israel. And this is what we read in, uh, in 19. 
chapter 1, verse 19 of, of John. And this is the testimony of John. When the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, Who are you? He confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. But, and, they, and they asked him, What then? Are you Elijah? He said, I am not. Are you the prophet? And he answered, No. Now, why are these questions kind of odd? Shouldn't they have known who John was? These are priests and Levites from Israel coming, to the, uh, coming out to the edge of, of Jerusalem and looking out and saying, who is this guy that's baptizing people? Who is he? Why, would they, why is that such a weird question? Because they knew his father. They knew who he was. But they are asking him, and John knows what they're really asking. Because he knew what he was doing. You see, he says, in the very first verse, he denies. It says, it's really odd how it words it. It says, he confessed, but did not deny. Or, well, let me read it again. I don't want to mess it up. Um, he confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. Isn't that kind of strange? I confessed and I did not deny that I am not the Christ. Didn't, isn't that a denial that he is the Christ? Well, they never asked him if he was the Christ. They just asked him who he was. And he's saying, well, I know why you're asking me this question. And let me just tell you from the get-go, I am not the Christ. And they went, okay, well, you're acting like it. How is he acting like it? Well, they had a picture of what the Christ would look like and what Elijah or the prophet would look like. And they were thinking about this passage probably here in Malachi chapter 4, verse 5. It says, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. You see, the, the Christ, uh, the prophet Elijah, was going to come in. He was coming in to prepare the way for the Lord. He would be the one that would usher in this new messianic age. And John's saying, I am not that guy. But John the Baptist is talked about a lot as Elijah. So what, what is the, isn't that contradictory? Well, no, probably because those uh, texts are referring to more of this type of passage, which is Malachi 3.1, where it says, Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me, and the Lord, the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. You see, Elijah was a messenger, a witness to the one who was to come. A witness to the Christ who was to come, the anointed one who was to come. And that's consistent with what you see in verse, uh, verses 6 through 8 when it says, There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. And you see the Jews and the priests and the Levites were very confused because he was doing things that were very Christ-like, at least in their mind, what a Christ figure should do. And this is what he was doing. And John says, and he verifies, he said, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. See, John's mission 
was to prepare the way of the Lord, to be the messenger, to bear witness about who was coming. But what was so disturbing to them was that, uh, that uh, was what he was doing. And we're going to talk more about what John was doing uh, later. Because what he was doing had very Christ-like implications. His illuminated mission was not just to prepare the way of the Lord, which is what uh, Zechariah had prayed over him, but what he saw in verse 34 is his, once he saw who the, who the Christ was, and once he told who the Christ was, listen to this verse. I'm not going to have it on my slide yet. But it says, And I have seen and have borne witness that this is the Son of God. And he was talking about Jesus Christ. So his mission went from being a person who was going to bear witness and prepare the way for the Lord to bearing witness about the actual Lord. It was a clarified mission. It was a clarified mission. Well, there's another set of characters that you see at the very beginning of this passage, and they are the Jews, the priests, and the Levites. In verse 19, it says, and this is the testimony of John. So we've already been introduced to who this John character is. Uh, We're going to learn more about his mission in a minute. But there's another set of characters. When the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, who are you? Well, who are these Jews that are sending priests and Levites? Well, it's not all of the Jews. The whole nation was not really concerned with necessarily who John was. But the, uh, the Jewish leaders, the Pharisee leaders, were the people who were sending the, the priests and the Levites to find out who Jesus was. And what we're going to find is that this is a pattern in their life. Uh, even just in this section of Scripture, in verse 22, it says, So they said to him, after John responded that he was the messenger that would be preparing the way of the Lord to make his path straight, they, say, they, said, so they said to him, Who are you? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? And you might ask yourself, well, who are the ones who sent us? Who are these Jews that have sent the priests and the Levites to inquire of John who he is? In verse 24, it says, Now they had been sent from the Pharisees. They asked him, Then why are you baptizing if you are neither the Christ, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? See, this group of people was a cynical people, but they also were a paranoid people. Because the baptism that they were concerned about, they were basically saying, who are you and why are you messing with our system? Because we're really good with how things are going right now. We're in a place of authority and of power. We're really good. We don't need you coming into our lives, John, to show us that there's a new way that God is preparing for all people. And when I say all people, I mean all people. Because John was not just baptizing Gentiles, he was also baptizing Jews. And in the Jewish tradition, baptism was for people who were converting into the Jewish faith. Not people who were born Jews. There was not a need for for Jews to be baptized if they were born Jews. They didn't need to do that. So when John was baptizing Jews, he was in a sense saying all of Israel would need to be cleansed. That this new day would be a time for all of Israel, all people to be cleansed. Everyone needs the covering of this new 
Christ, this new Messiah. It wasn't enough for you to be called a child of Abraham. It wasn't enough for you to uh, rely on your family lineage anymore. But there was this, and there was this thought that, wait a second, what John is doing is messing with what we're about. People might not come to us as the go-to people. Well, how do we know that this is paranoia? How do we know they're just not intrigued by the truth and want to know about the truth? Well, let's look further into John. John seven thirty-two. The Pharisees heard the crowd muttering these things about him, which is Jesus, and the chief priests and the Pharisees sent officers to arrest him. Why would they do that? The officers then came to the chief priests and Pharisees who said to them, Why did you not bring him? The officers answered, No one ever spoke like this man. Later in chapter 11, So the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council and said, What are we to do? For this man performs many signs. If you were to stop there, you'd go, This is not a thing where they're nervous. This is a thing where they're probably really excited, right? I mean, he's performing many signs. Maybe this is the Christ. Maybe he is going to come and restore Israel to its place in the world. But instead, they say, if we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. And the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. So from that day on, they made plans to put him to death. Now the chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders that if anyone knew where he was, he should let them know so that they might arrest him. And finally, they find someone who complies and who joins their mission. And you know the story, if you've uh, been in church before, that Judas is that man. So Judas, having procured a band of soldiers and some officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees, went there with lanterns and torches and weapons. You see how the mission of these people was to contain and destroy Jesus. The mission of the Jews and the the chief priests, the Pharisees, the Levites, their mission was self-preservation, self-protection. They wanted to make sure everything stayed And kept the status quo. We're going to talk about this later. But is that so different from us? That we don't want to know what someone else is doing. That's good because, you know, we're doing our own thing here. I heard on the radio someone criticizing someone who came out uh, about an affair that they had had. And his criticism was, why do I need to know that? That's personal to you, not to me. I don't need to know what's going on in everyone else's life. I just need to be worried about how I live and how I'm doing. But you know that the Jews, the the Jewish leaders, the Pharisees, the Levites, and the priests, they did not have this feeling. They're going, listen, if we, if other people believe in him, This has ramifications for us. And so their mission became to contain, and when they saw they couldn't contain him, destroy Jesus. But the illuminated mission, and this is what I think is so amazing, is that 
Jesus took that mission and made it a stage for him to bring life. Think about it. They were successful in one sense of their mission. They destroyed him. They crucified him on a cross. But what came of that? He rose again in order to bring life to all of humanity so that all may believe. So that all might believe. And so what we see in one nineteen through 23 is really this mission of Christ being activated. We see that the colliding mission of John and what Zechariah had prophesied about John, what Jesus was going to be doing, and what the Jews and what all of humanity in essence would be trying to do from this point on to try and suppress Christ, to try and keep him out of our lives. Notice I said our, not their lives. Activated a mission in John, the Gospel of John. For Christ to be revealed and for people to either believe and find life and not just eternal life, but remember last week we said abundant life or to choose to not believe, to not believe and, and, and uh, be on track towards the mission of the, of the Pharisees and the priests and the Levites' ultimate end, which was death and destruction. You see, when we self-preserve, when we think that, that we're good where we are, that I don't need to grow in Christ, we're just okay. And there's, and there's no sense of just, there's no equilibrium there. It's either you're on track of growth or you're on a track to death. A track to life or a track to death. Those are the two tracks. There's no middle ground. There's no just okay. It's either choosing the mission of life or choosing the mission towards death. And that's what we see activated in uh, this interaction here. Let's keep going in verse 26. We're going to see this mission uh, come to life in John. You see, it says, John responds to them about what he's doing, why he's on mission and doing it in this way, why he's baptizing people. John answered them, I baptize with water, but among you stands one you do not know. Even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. He emphasizes that you do not know them, as if mocking them. But what we'll find is that even John is almost surprised by who it is and excited by who it is. And you'll notice that in this interaction that the, the, the Pharisees, the priests, the Levites, they never say, so who is he? If he's not you, then who? Instead, they just go silent. John answered them, I baptize with water, but among you stands one you do not know. Even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. These things took place in Bethany across the Jordan where John was baptizing. So you see that... uh, John doesn't say who it is yet. He just says, this is my purpose. This is why I'm here, to prepare the way of the Lord. 
And he, and he gives these people a great opportunity to say, all right, then who? Show us. Who is he? We want to know. Because we want to we find life. But they don't do that. We get the impression from this text that they actually maybe just turn around and, and go back to the, the Jewish uh, leaders. They leave. John continues, the next day, in verse 29, it says, The next day he saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, After me comes a man who ranks before me, because he was before me. This is huge, because this is John's way of pulling back the curtains and going, This is the guy who I was talking to you about. This is him. I'm calling him the Lamb of God. Why is it significant that, that he is calling him the Lamb of God? The Lamb of God, the significance of the Lamb of God is that it shows that Jesus, it, it alludes to the voluntary sacrifice that Jesus will one day um, live out. Uh, it's what he talks about in John 10, 17 through 18. It also refer, refers, John recognized the purity of uh, of Jesus, which is talked about in 1 John 3, verses 2 and 3. And it says in verse 29, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is significant because, and, and he's excited about it, because the Jews of that time, they knew they needed forgiveness of their sins. It's why they practiced uh, offering sacrifices. It's why they would give uh, sacrifices to the Lord so that they would be in right standing before God. But what makes John so excited is that it's through this Lamb of God that people would find true forgiveness and true relationship with God. John said, I myself did not know him, but for this purpose I came baptizing with water that he might be revealed to Israel. Well, didn't Israel already know that they needed the forgiveness of their sins? If they were already practicing uh, the Jewish laws and the Jewish customs, they already knew that they needed forgiveness of sins. But John knew their sacrifices were only accepted as an expression of God's grace, which pointed to a more complete salvation that was to come. And the more complete salvation that was to come would be through Jesus Christ. You see, instead of his grace being doled out when people offered their sacrifices, grace was made manifest in the person of Jesus Christ. Remember it says in uh, uh, verse 14 that he came full of grace and truth. Meaning that no longer did Individual graces need to be doled out to, uh, to make someone right when they offered out sacrifices. But he was the one sacrifice, and he now was giving grace to be redeemed and be in relationship with Christ. But he was also giving them grace so they could live out this new life that is found in Christ. People were now empowered because of the grace of Jesus Christ. Remember, in verse 18, no one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. He has made uh, them 
experience and have the ability to live out a grace-filled life. Now we get to see the testimony of John, of, of how he knew. We know his purpose. We know his mission. He came to prepare the way of the Lord. He came to uh, reveal to Israel their need for the forgiveness of sins and that that need would only be made right through the person of Jesus Christ. But how did John know that Jesus was the one? That he was the one and only, the Christ, the Son of God. Verse 32, it says, And John bore witness. I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes in the Holy Spirit. Then finally in verse 34, And I have seen and have borne witness that this is the Son of God. If you were to see the Spirit of God descend on a man, do you think that's evidence enough? For John it was. It was so life-changing that he said, this is the guy. This is the guy I've been preparing my whole life for. And now I need to share it with others. Verse 32 and 33 talk about uh, why he got to this, how he got to this place. It reminds us of John's purpose statement. But these are written so that you may believe. When John believed, he realized that there was life to be had in this person. And then he began to live in the newness of this life by sharing it with others. And that's what he does in verses uh, 32 through 34. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Uh, I want to show you a story uh, in just a second. But what you see through the person of, of Jesus Christ is that he, uh, that, that we are all on a mission uh, and on a course to bring, uh, to try and self-protect, uh, self-promote, um, self uh, just try and find a life in our, own, in our own way, in our own life. But when Jesus comes on the scene, he takes us from a place that's on a mission and on a course for destruction and sets us on a new course. He offers the new course, but when we believe and, and uh, trust in his name, when we have hope in him and what he has done and believe that he has offered himself full of grace and truth to empower us, to not just uh, provide us momentary salvation, but eternal and abundant life salvation. It sets us on a new course and a new mission. I was reading a blog, and, it, and it's, the title of the blog was Stop Singing Oceans. Maybe you saw it. It's a song that we sing. And so we're going to sing it this morning. Uh, because that's, that's what I do. I'm rebellious like that. Uh, but this was her thoughts. This was her thoughts. She said, if you recognize Jesus as the Son of God and ask the Holy Spirit to lead you to where your trust is without borders, do you actually mean that? Because it could look like giving money away. Or it could look like being, the kind, being kind to the mom no one else will talk to at soccer practice. 
Or it could be fostering even though you aren't sure you're equipped. Or it could be asking that girl or that guy on a date even though you are scared. Or it could be standing up for your faith when a neighbor makes fun of other Christians. Or it could be moving to a foreign country or a less affluent neighborhood or just moving to another table in the lunchroom. Are you asking God to take you to where your trust has no borders? Do you know what that means? You have to leave your borders, whatever they are, your economic borders, your social borders, your geographic borders, your religious borders, your racial borders, whatever it is that God has put on your heart and called you into, he has called you to a mission to bring life. And that means you have to believe in him and trust that he will give you the life that he has promised, not just an eternal life, but an abundant life, full of grace and truth. This doesn't feel good when you are going through it sometimes, but we sing with our hands raised high for God to make us uncomfortable. That doesn't make any sense, does it? And then we feel the nudge, the nudge to buy coffee for a homeless man or confess a sin to your huddle small group or to share something that has happened that has deeply affected you in your past. And the question that I would ask you is, what will you do? How will you respond to the life that God has offered you? What mission will you go on uh, with Christ? You can't go on a mission with Christ unless you know who he is, and it brings us back to those four pillars of the faith the four pillars of belief in Christ and to live the Christ life? Are you grounded in truth and know who he is? John was when he saw the Spirit descend on Jesus like a dove and saw that he was full of the Spirit and that he would be baptizing in the Spirit. He said, this is is who I am to proclaim. He is the God. He He is the Lamb of God, the Son of God, and that I want to follow. And he responded by being faithful in obedience. And generous in love. Do you know how John the Baptist died? He was beheaded for his faith in Christ, for what he had proclaimed and how he had lived his life. He did that so that others may know. And lastly, are to be fruitful in disciple making. We are not called to be Christians for our own sakes but so that we would be filled with grace because, and when we realize and experience what that actually looks like, we have the privilege of giving that away. Missions can collide when we are challenged to grow as disciples of Jesus and live as he lived. And when we are encouraged to live as he lived, when we have a new mission that is marked by the person of Jesus Christ, we can sing songs like Ocean's not just give them lip service, but actually sing them. We don't sing the songs just because we're worshiping worshiping an invisible God. We're worshiping the God-made flesh, Jesus Christ. The one who came and dwelt among us, offering life full of grace and truth to all those who will believe. That's the hope that we have. And that's why we sing the songs that we sing. So let me pray, and then we'll let Tommy 
and Mandy jam out and sing uh, with us. And please join. God, thank you so much for putting us on course not towards self-protection and self-promotion and self-preservation, but towards life. God, that might mean that we need to lose our lives. We might have to put others' interests before our own. We might have to put your interests before our own. But God, thank you that when we do that, it's just a reflection of what you've already done for us. That you've already gone before us and imitated truth, imitated obedience, imitated love, and imitated disciple-making. You are the pure Lamb of God, the Son of God, the one and only Jesus Christ. Thank you so much for the truth that that is and for the life that we can live now because of you. We pray this all in Jesus' name.